0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 6, Part 11. The two events which proved to the public that Sunderland and Sunderland's party were victorious were the prorogation of the Parliament from February to May, and the departure of Castlemaine for Rome with the appointment of an ambassador of the highest rank. Hitherto all the business of the English government at the papal court had been transacted by John Carroll. This gentleman was known to his contemporaries as a man of fortune and fashion, and as the author of two successful plays, a tragedy in rhyme, which had been made popular by the action and recitation of Betterton, and a comedy which owes all its value to scenes borrowed from Moliere. These pieces have long been forgotten, but what Carroll could not do for himself has been done for him by a more powerful genius. Half a line in The Rape of the Lock has made his name immortal. Carroll, who was, like all the other respectable Roman Catholics, an enemy of violent courses, had acquitted himself of his delicate errand at Rome with good sense and good feeling. The business confided to him was well done, but he assumed no public character, and carefully avoided all display. His mission, therefore, put the government to scarcely any charge— and excited scarcely any murmurs. His place was now most unwisely supplied by a costly and ostentatious embassy, offensive in the highest degree to the people of England, and by no means welcome to the court of Rome. Castlemaine had it in charge to demand a cardinal's hat for his confederate, Peter. About the same time the king began to show in an unequivocal manner, the feeling which he really entertained towards the banished Huguenots. While he had still hoped to cajole his Parliament into submission and to become the head of a European coalition against France, he had affected to blame the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and to pity the unhappy men whom persecution had driven from their country. He had caused it to be announced that at every church in the kingdom, a collection would be made under his sanction for their benefit. A proclamation on this subject had been drawn up in terms which might have wounded the pride of a sovereign less sensitive and vainglorious than Louis. But all was now changed. The principles of the Treaty of Dover were again the principles of the foreign policy of England— Ample apologies were therefore made for the discourtesy with which the English government had acted towards France in showing favour to the exiled Frenchmen. The proclamation, which had displeased Louis, was recalled. The Huguenot ministers were admonished to speak with reverence of their oppressor in their public discourses, as they would answer us at their peril. James not only ceased to express commiseration for the sufferers, but declared that he believed them to harbour the worst designs, and owned that he had been guilty of an error in countenancing them. One of the most eminent of the refugees, John Claude, had published on the continent a small volume in which he described with great force the suffering of his brethren. Berillon demanded that some opprobrious mark should be put on his book. James complied and in full counsel declared it to be his pleasure that Claude's libel should be burned by the hangman before the royal exchange. Even Jeffreys was startled, and ventured to represent that such a proceeding was without example, that the book was written in a foreign tongue, that it had been printed at a foreign press, that it related entirely to transactions which had taken place in a foreign country, and that no English government had ever animadverted on such works. James would not suffer the question to be discussed. My resolution, he said, is taken. It has become the fashion to treat kings disrespectfully, and they must stand by each other. One king should always take another's part, and I have particular reasons for showing this respect to the king of France. There was silence at the board. The order was forthwith issued, and Claude's pamphlet was committed to the flames, not without the deep murmurs of many who had always been reputed steady loyalists. The promised collection was long put off under various pretexts. The king would gladly have broken his word, but it was pledged so solemnly that he could not for very shame retract. Nothing, however, which could cool the zeal of the congregations was omitted. It had been expected that, according to the practice usual on such occasions, the people would be exhorted to liberality from the pulpits. But James was determined not to tolerate declamations against his religion and his ally. The Archbishop of Canterbury was therefore commanded to inform the clergy that they must merely read the brief, and must not presume to preach on the sufferings of the French Protestants. Nevertheless... The contributions were so large that, after all deductions, the sum of forty thousand pounds was paid into the Chamber of London. Perhaps none of the munificent subscriptions of our own age has borne so great a proportion to the means of the nation. The king was bitterly mortified by the large amount of the collection which had been made in obedience to his call. He knew, he said, what all this liberality meant. It was mere whiggish spite to himself and his religion. He had already resolved that the money should be of no use to those whom the donors wished to benefit. He had been, during some weeks, in close communication with the French embassy on this subject, and had, with the approbation of the court of Versailles, determined on a course which it is not very easy to reconcile with those principles of toleration to which he afterwards pretended to be attached. The refugees were zealous for the Calvinistic discipline and worship. James, therefore, gave orders that none should receive a crust of bread or a basket of coals who did not first take the sacrament according to the Anglican ritual. It is strange that this inhospitable rule should have been devised by a prince who affected to consider the test act as an outrage on the rights of conscience for however unjustifiable it may be to establish a sacramental test for the purpose of ascertaining whether men are fit for civil or military office, it is surely much more unjustifiable to establish a sacramental test for the purpose of ascertaining whether, in their extreme distress, they are fit objects of charity. Nor had James the plea which may be urged in extenuation of the guilt of almost all other persecutors for the religion which he commanded the refugees to profess, on pain of being left to starve, was not his own religion. His conduct towards them was therefore less excusable than that of Louis, for Louis oppressed them in the hope of bringing them over from a damnable heresy to the true church. James oppressed them only for the purpose of forcing them to apostatize from one damnable heresy to another. Several commissioners, of whom the Chancellor was one, had been appointed to dispense the public arms. When they met for the first time, Geoffreys announced the royal pleasure. The refugees, he said, were too generally enemies of monarchy and episcopy. If they wished for relief, they must become members of the Church of England, and must take the sacrament from the hands of his chaplain. Many exiles, who had come full of gratitude and hope to apply for succour, heard their sentence and went broken-hearted away. End of part 11